Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies. It's me, Maria Norris, and welcome to episode 20 of Enemies of the People. Because of my work on extremism and terrorism, I often get asked to engage in debates about human rights and free speech. I rarely ever say yes, because for me, human rights are not up for debate. An individual's right to exist and live with dignity should never be up for debate. And yet it is astounding that in today's society, and yet it is astounding that it And yet it is astounding that on the UK today, human rights, especially as they apply to those with marginalized identities such as migrants, travelers, the disabled, racial minorities and the LGBTQ plus community are presented as conditional. I talked about this very issue on today's episode with the wonderful C.N. Lester. C.N. is a musician, an academic, and an activist, and they also have the most amazing wide-framed glasses I have ever seen. I have glasses envy. (laughs) C.N. is also the author of Trans Like Me, one of my favorite books of the last few years. It is also our February book club pick. It is a beautiful book, both rich in compassion and righteous anger, and I highly recommend it to everyone and anyone. Now, without further ado, here's CN. Hi, my name is CN Lester, and I am based in London. I'm a musician, I'm a writer, I am an early career academic. I have been a LGBTI sort of activist, organizer, advocate since I was a teenager, and I'm now in my 30s. So that's been a long time uh, to be doing it. I curate the Trans Arts Night Transpose, and I'm the author of the 2017-2018 work Trans Like Me. I have a million dollar question for you. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, how could you measure the health of the trans rights debate in the United Kingdom right now in February 2022? Oh, I mean, I would probably say that if this was the kind of tear-jerking family movie and the quote-unquote state of the trans debate, the health of the trans debate was what we were looking at, um, all I can think of is that terrible moment in like tear-jerking films where the old dog is sort of taken around the back of the farm and shot. That's all I can really (laughs) see. That's the level of health we're at. I mean, the fact that we're even calling it a debate is such a sign of how badly the sort of endemically and deeply rooted transphobic narrative and framing of who trans people are, what our rights mean, what our lives signify, sort of just how badly we've been affected by that framing, that discourse. Yeah, I I just think it's rotten to the core by this point. Yes, and you're absolutely right to point out that the very fact that it is a debate is a problem. Because in what world is it that people's rights to exist and live as they choose, as they are, is a debate? Uh, I think the health of of human rights in the UK full stop, frankly. And, you know, the fact that it is happening after many years of austerity where the rights of disabled people, you know, were were called into question. And that, that was a huge debate. You know, who's really disabled? Are they just scroungers? It's happening at the same time as a deeply authoritarian and regressive government trying to push through some of the most racist 
legislation I mean, I've ever seen in this country. I mean, they're thinking of the policing bill, thinking of the nationality and borders bill, the treatment of refugees, the scapegoating of people who quote unquote aren't like us. And the idea that every fact of, of other people's existence can be called into not just a discussion, but a debate in which opinion is seen as the same as fact. And that, you know, you've got these two kind of talking heads that can yell at each other on a BBC platform. And, and that's supposedly enlightening anybody. It's, it's, it's unintellectual. It's completely lacking in compassion. And it's completely lacking in a factual basis. It's, oh, you can tell I'm quite angry. Before this podcast <laughs> started, I actually asked Maria if it was okay if I swore or not, because I'm trying to get an explicit marking. I just can't promise I won't launch off into one because I, I'm i frightened about where we're going. And I think we, I, I write in Trans Like Me about the backlash that the country was in in 2017, and we were in a backlash, and there were some very frightening signs about where we were going. And it's no pleasure whatsoever to to be in this moment having worried that we would get here and I, I guess all I want to really think about now is is how the hell do we get out of this mess because for me it seems like we're getting it's getting worse we were talking about this beforehand that it seems that it's just getting worse it's getting more extreme and I've just done a twitter thread on on um, the conservative government and how it's become progressively extremist over the years you know first with David Cameron Theresa May now Boris Johnson and now the Boris Johnson appears to be in decline whoever comes after him I guarantee will be worse than he is because that's the direction of travels things are getting worse things are getting more extreme in this country and I think we are all frightened but I think people who have marginalized identities have more reason to be frightened because it is the threat always comes to the minorities first before it starts affecting the majorities. But I also think that when it comes to trans people and the insane transphobia that we see in the UK mm-hmm. is the way that I see it is that transphobia or gender critical, whatever you <laughs> want to call it these days, yeah. it appears to be like an acceptable gateway into extremism because they can always frame themselves as just having reasonable mm-hmm. questions about women's safety and shelters, etc. When the moment you look into that question in with any kind of scrutiny, you see it for the false flag that it is for the entryway to much more bigotry. And I, I think what's very interesting there is the way in which it's used in a, as an acceptable wedge issue is both like and unlike the ways in which other minority groups are targeted, again, as kind of deliberate wedges in. And I think it's really important. I deplore what people are doing here, but I think it is deliberate. I think it's smart. And I think they have been very clever in picking targets, and I'm thinking specifically picking targets of disabled people, Gypsy Roma and traveler people, migrants, refugees, and Muslim people and trans people in picking targets that they can use to elicit a disgust response and that they can frame as we're protecting women and children or we're protecting other sort of sort of people, people at risk. It, it's using a very sort of basic sense of a, a basic set of psychological responses. And it really fascinates me just how similar the reactions become, you know, looking 
the, the way that you can turn off someone's humanity towards their fellow human beings by triggering either that disgust response or that protective response. So with the demonization of disabled people, there was an awful lot of, oh, you know, we're not attacking, attacking really disabled people. We're attacking the people who are you know, the disgusting scroungers who are actually a risk to the people that you care about. While now later sort of further on during the COVID pandemic, you see an awful lot of, oh, well, you know, these are people who may have deserved to die anyway. And it's almost like an idea they're kind of disgusting and lesser human beings. And, and you know, therefore we can reduce that. The, the level looking certainly in like local politics of disgust that gets leveled at Gypsy Roma traveler people. Again, we can take away their rights because we're disgusted by them. The language of disgust used in, in tabloid and broadsheet newspapers in the UK towards refugees, towards Muslims, it, it all... I'm not saying that all of these groups are the same or experience the same burdens, but the language that, that the people who are pushing this authoritarianism sort of into our culture and, and growing it and sort of benefiting from it, they are using a remarkably similar set of approaches. So I think it's really important to think about that when we think about the attacks on trans rights, because it's not happening in a vacuum. And it's not, this is not the only sort of group which are being demonized in this way. And it's very interesting the way that they often sort of link up these different prejudices. I'm thinking there's been some amazing work really done on Mumsnet's hatred of sex workers. And again, how that really ties in with the hatred of trans people and trans women in particular. And the use of languages that these are all disgusting sort of vectors that could come and infect us and, and threaten us. Well, you mentioned Mumsnet and it's, for me, is a key illustration of all of this that we're talking about, because at first it is innocuous, harmless, you know, a forum for moms to get together and discuss issues. But the moment you look into it with any kind of depth, you see how much radicalization is happening on mom's net. My own experience of this was a few years ago when I had my daughter and I was very vulnerable. I had extreme postnatal depression and they went on mom's net for help, you know, for find information. And I only wanted to know the experience of other parents who had gone to take their babies for their eight week vaccines. And how was it? Mm-hmm. And instead, I got bombarded with anti-vax, with anti-vaxxers and anti-vax misinformation. And thank all the gods everywhere that I didn't listen to it. And I still Mm -hmm. took my daughter for all her vaccinations. But it really, even at that moment of vulnerability, it struck me how dangerous that Mm -hmm. situation is, how easily somebody could be swept away in Mm -hmm. this thing, in this fear. And um, a lot of research and conspiracy theories, we've had Annie Klein speak on the podcast and Abby Richards as well, really looks at this whole idea of saving the children and protecting Mm -hmm. the children as being a legitimate concern and as an entry point to a lot more radicalized views. You see that with anti-vaxxers and you also see it very clearly with the trans rights situation because it is this grants an extra layer of legitimacy to this concern of protecting the children, protect women. We can all agree that that is the goal, right? It really does. And I think there's a phrase which is incredibly telling, which is the phrase reasonable concerns, mm-hmm. which I mean, you cannot you cannot look at any of the material being brought out by transphobic groups in the UK, by transphobic individuals, or by, you know, thinking of statewide bodies, government bodies who are pandering to or working with transphobes. All of them use the term reasonable concern. It's either that they have reasonable concerns or they understand that others have reasonable concerns or because others have reasonable concerns, they will 
sort of air more and more and more debate. And it's a really fascinating way for me, the way that's used, because usually if you have a reasonable concern over something, you investigate it and, and deal with it. You know, if I had a reasonable concern that, I don't know, the salad in my fridge was off, you know, and <laughs> should I eat it or not? You know, I would try and sort that out, but I wouldn't just keep standing in the kitchen, like endlessly saying, is this salad off? You know, you, you, a reasonable concern is a, a movement towards action. But of course, every single one of quote unquote reasonable concerns has already been dealt with, addressed so many times in not just the literature of research into trans healthcare or sort of trans related medicine, but, you know, by trans people in our lives, through our communities, that it would disappear if you, if you try to, do you see what I mean? It is so unbelievably fake. Yes. (laughs) And it's so obviously and painfully fake but it works so well because you know then you're not a monster you're not you're not a terrible person you know you just have a reasonable concern you just you just have a reasonable concern is it okay if we do this terrible thing and I I think I was making a little note when you were speaking about this idea and you would save the children save the children save the children I always want to come back to the fact that we we have lived in a deeply deeply transphobic culture for a long time and because we have entered this bizarre world where transphobes can say, no, but we're the discriminated against minority. Oh no, the woke police are coming for us. This brave new world is out to get me and my reasonable concerns. I think we sometimes forget just how deeply the transphobia of our culture, and particularly the trans misogyny of our culture has gone, how it's shaped all of us and how that leads to the sort of category clash that means we cannot conceive of protecting women and children to mean protecting trans women and protecting trans children. And thinking of this very particular point about, you know, protecting the children, you know, we have this cultural idea of what a child is, you know, this of the innocence of childhood, this pureness of childhood, you know, I'm sure in your work, you cover lots of, you know, material about sort of the idea of the white child and which children are innocent and which children are not. And who trans people are in this culture, if you're just looking at sort of popular media and entertainment for the last 40, 50 years, is deviant, is sexual, is a secret fetish you look up, is commonly a serial killer. You know, that's a big trope that's been there for a long time, or at best is a pitiable victim that no one would ever want to be. And those things are, you know, completely diametrically opposed to the, the, cultural category we have of childhood or certainly you know so our our angelic sort of you know pure sweet childhood and I think I think that people using these using these debates quote-unquote to further their own political ends very well aware of this it works well it plays well it hits something very deep in a lot of people where they will respond emotionally without stopping to think about it because it, it it's a gut feeling, right? This is disgusting. Keep it away from, from the people I want to protect. Yeah, it's, I think all that we're talking about here is exactly what you open your book with, which is the production of ignorance, isn't it? This is deliberate production of ignorance. And your example of the salad in the fridge really, really brought that. Um, it was really brilliant because I thought, not only can you go and you open the fridge and you check if your salad is okay, but if you're involved in this production of ignorance, 
you don't really check if your salad is okay. You continue to write articles about whether or not your salad is spoiled, or if you check and your salad is fine, maybe other salads aren't fine. <laughs> this was a one-off, right? Because, mm-hmm. because there is a lot of money in producing mm-hmm. ignorance and it's very successful and it's a very powerful thing to do. So I wanted you to, for our listeners, to explore this idea of the production of ignorance a bit more. So I was very lucky to be introduced to the concept of the production of ignorance by an incredible musicologist called Melanie Marshall. And she and when I reached out to go, oh, my God, I said, yes, you need to read Nancy Tuana, a feminist philosopher who writes about this, wrote this incredible paper uh, about you know, production of ignorance, particularly looking at the women's health movement and looking at feminist movements and the sort of the reclaiming of the ability to access or the claiming in some cases of, of genuinely factual reproductive health. And Tuana's work blows my mind, continues to blow my mind all the time. And, and at the heart of Tuana's work is saying we can't study knowledge, we can't study wisdom without studying ignorance, because ignorance is not the absence of knowledge. Ignorance is something which can be produced. It can be produced passively, but it is often produced actively. And when it's produced actively, it's usually in the circle of different ends or of different groups. And the best way I can think about this to illustrate is little me as a, as a baby pianist, you know, 14 years old. And I turned to my music teacher at school and said, why aren't we studying any women composers? And he said, there weren't any you know, slammed it down. And then you could see him going, "Mm." and he went, well, there weren't any good ones. And, you know, I didn't study a single woman composer until I did so off my own back for my PhD. Like, so not through any of my ABRSM grades, not through my GCSEs, not through my A-levels, not through my Bachelor of Music, not through my Masters of Music, not one composer who wasn't a Sears white man. And it wasn't just that one music teacher who was saying to me there were no music, there were no women composers. That entire musical establishment was perpetuating the lie that there were none by, you know, multiple different ends, which you know I spent ages in my PhD talking about. But I think that's the best way of explaining it. And if you think of any subject that you know well, you can probably think of the ways in which ignorance on that subject is passively constructed and and sort of parceled round and spreads and gets repeated and gets distorted even further. And then the ways in which deliberate ignorance is parceled up as if it were fact. So I wanted to read, there was an amazing article that came out today by Ben Hunt talking about the ways in which people very, very close to the top of EHRC have been meeting with anti-trans groups and anti-trans activists in the UK. And A video that was shown was produced by the LGB Alliance and Vice World News reports on it, talking about this video. And I just want to quote from the article because I think it really illustrates this production of ignorance. So they call transition horrifying. And this is a quote. It leads to a life of infertility, loss of sexual feeling, continuous medication and appalling surgery. We're so glad that we're not growing up in this kind of ethos which we have today. And when I look at that, it's so interesting to me that you can break down the most common anti-trans talking points and the ways in which they're legitimized and given a factfulness, if not fact, it's given like the, the feeling of fact. The idea, we're so glad we're not growing up in this kind of ethos which we have today. So trans people are new, trans people are shocking, they're a threat, they don't exist within a traditional human structure, they're somehow imposed from the outside. So again, push it away, get rid of it. It's 
it's like a virus which is going to come and infect you that transitioning leads to a life of infertility not true loss of sexual feeling not true continuous medication not necessarily true but also if you are on continuous medication there are lots and lots and lots of ways you can be on continuous medication it doesn't mean you're having a bad life it just means you might take a pill in the morning and appalling surgery well the surgery I've had has not been appalling or any more than any other surgery you've had. I think surgery is pretty amazing, actually, that we live in an age where we don't have to live with badly set, you know, badly healed bones and we don't have to die of appendicitis. And, you know, we can use amazing advances in medical technology to give people peace in their bodies. Sounds good to me. I benefited from it. It wasn't appalling. It was expensive. And I got two weeks lying on my back, reading a lot of things, a lot of academic work while I was high on painkillers. So I'm not entirely <laughs> understood it all that well, <laughs> but I was keeping myself entertained. So that was really good. But yeah, it, it, everything they said there is a lie and they presented it as fact and they're spreading it to people who will either believe it is fact or even if they don't believe it, will use it for their own ends. And, and so it will keep spreading and it will keep growing. It's fascinating because when you talked about um, a lifetime of medication, for example, as if that's a bad thing. I mean, I have a contraceptive implant that lives in my arm mm. and I have to replace it every three years if I don't want to get pregnant. Yeah. And there's, yeah. it's normal. I take mental health medication every day and, you know, and I have done so for years. It's why is it that in this particular case, it's framed as, you know, a negative thing when it's something that a lot of people go through, people with chronic illnesses and disabilities and things like that but it's always presented as the outlier isn't it like the extreme case it's never about someone who takes half an aspirin every day because their doctor recommends it because they're at risk of heart disease like it's never ever and it's always it but again you know it's you know similar language we see around you know anti sort of anti-women talking points about birth control you know, it's it's unnatural. You're putting it in your body. You should use your natural body to have babies. It's it's deeply regressive. And these movements are in many, many cases tied to misogynistic groups who are also working against abortion access, against reproductive freedom, against access to contraceptives. It it is all linked. And I think the the use of this kind of horror at the idea of medical intervention again not all trans people will have it some people will some people won't some people will have surgery some people will be on hormones some people will be on hormones stop taking them go back on them it really doesn't matter because we have a fundamental right to bodily autonomy and you can't fight against bodily autonomy without entering some very very dangerous areas and that's such a basic feminist point Again, you know, the idea that these people are calling themselves feminists, the fact that anyone has indulged that (laughs) makes me want to. I mean, obviously, within feminism, it's such a broad church. There are so many different movements. You know, it's a global coalition of so many individual different movements. And there has always been a regressive streak in some forms of feminism. But there is nothing feminist about this. This is a deeply conservative authoritarian attack on bodily autonomy, on freedom, on human rights. And trans people are being used as a wedge, but it didn't start with us and it will not end with us. What is fascinating, horrifying, fascinating is not the word, is that as we saw with Ben Hunt's article, which I will link to on the episode notes, um, on the episode description, is that the production of ignorance is extremely well-funded and 
it's extremely well funded. It is extremely well connected. And it's coming from the top down. This is not like a grassroots movement against trans people, for example. It is coming from the top down. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a great way of getting people on your side. You know, our government has acted appallingly. It has acted appallingly from the get-go. But, I mean, I honestly, hand on heart, my editor and my agent had a little talk with me in December last year saying, would you please agree not to consume any news in January? Because I, I wasn't functioning and I couldn't get my deadlines in on time because, you know, I'm sick of what's been done. I the I, Yeah, I'm struggling for words. The, the level of corruption, of cruelty, of deliberate turning away from any form of care and pretending that that's all right, that if you're not rubbing your hands together with glee and sort of stroking your moustache, that you're not a villain, even if you're letting people die, even if you're contributing to such huge amounts of pain and suffering. It's a really easy way of getting people distracted from that, is to point and say, look at look at that person over there. Aren't they disgusting? Aren't they gross? Don't you just want them not to exist? We know this. It's not It's not rocket science. I would just say shame on anybody who thinks that we need to indulge hatred towards other people as a sort of basic point. Yes, we will disagree. Yes, that's a very hard conversation that societies have to keep having about how do we live in relative peace with each other when we can have so many different contrary you know, opinions and beliefs and desires of how to live our lives. But but there is that basic fundamental point about, you know, the, the intolerance of tolerance, the tolerance of intolerance to, to, you know, think of Karl Popper, you know, dehumanizing other people to the point where they are not human anymore, they don't deserve rights is, is not something we should ever entertain. Have you had a chance to rate and review Enemies of the People yet? Please do so. Rating, reviewing, and sharing our show are the best ways to ensure that we climb up the UK podcast rankings. Right now we are, shock horror, back behind Nigel Farage's podcast in the rankings. But with your help, we can leapfrog him again. This week, why don't you try sharing the podcast with three people? Or why stop at three? Go for five, ten, twenty. Talk about it in the group chat. Reply all to a work email. Whatever you can do to get the word out about enemies of the people will be greatly appreciated. You can also support us over a coffee and join the book club. The link is in the episode description. Now, back to the show. movement the feminist movement doesn't all they don't all agree they have lots of different agree there's lots of different schools we don't all agree on everything as feminists that's fine i'm a terrorism scholar i don't agree with all terrorist scholars out there it's we can have great conversations about this topic um, and we and we do but there is a line that you don't cross and for me as a feminist what shocks me is that we are back to this idea that being a woman is in your it's not even biology anymore. It's in the genes. It has gone so much more reductionist that it's in the genes. And you have people out there saying that they are feminists and this is what feminism is when it was never what feminism was. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it comes from when you talk about the, the, the production of ignorance and the presenting of certain opinions at fact is the erasure 
of people, the erasure mm -hmm. of people from literature and in the feminist movement, the deliberate erasure and overlooking the work from female scholars of color, of mm -hmm. trans scholars, of scholars who have disabilities as sex workers, for example, that are not presented as canon. I have a big issue with this concept of canon, which mm -hmm. you as an academic, I imagine, <laughs> yeah. you have as well. Yeah, <laughs> the music side, but yes, it spreads, absolutely. I, I don't know if you found this, but but certainly in music and certainly in feminism, I think, and, and it you know, forms such a big part of transphobia, is that element it's it feels like it links ideas of disgust and corruption and this idea of the production of ignorance and canonicity and a sense of purity right so so in certainly in music and some you know some really deeply long-held traditions in in classical music there is the idea that the canon is by by virtue of having a canon by having like the canon of composers they have proved they deserve to be there because only genius can get there and there there's so much in there about purity I mean, literally the word pure people which might be impure a pure genius who has heard music from the from the mind of god that is something that we we talk about all the time in music that the purity of the like it's not music that you sing at a pub it's not music that you'd sing for entertainment at home it's pure music and by that they mean music which is solely intellectual solely artistic and the ways in which non-pure musicians have been kept out of the canon and we do a little bunny is there is often linked to ideas that they're polluted and that can be a very deliberate um, and open talk about pollution, thinking in sort of early modern texts that talked about like the mouth being linked to the vagina and that women singers and women musicians were stained with a kind of menstrual or vaginal effluence that was impacting their music. I wish I was joking here, but I'm really not. There is a horrific French critique of opera where uh, <laughs> the very angry author talked about the idea that to listen to opera, which was an effeminate art form would be literally to be stewing in menstrual blood uh, because that's how polluted you would be. And if that was just effeminate music by cis men, go and help you if you listen to music by women. And I don't think you can have a narrow an essentialist view of what something is without working with these concepts of purity, pollution, and the other. Right. That's a pretty basic point. And it, it's really interesting, this idea of no, but feminism is about being a woman, which is in my genes. It's a really pure and static space. It's almost like, no, I have a woman's essence. I have a woman's, you know, something special that you can't get at, you can't touch. Whereas people who fall outside that are always tainted. They're always polluted. And, you know, you see the most awful things, but, you know, obviously trans people are all tainted and polluted by their disgusting bodies and, you know, but trans women by their male essences and their male souls. And the, uh, but I've seen the same language. I remember, oh, God, you know, all the awful stuff about bi women not being allowed in lesbian spaces. And I remember one person I had the misfortune to chat to at like an LGBT thing when I was about 19 or 20, you know, going on in all seriousness about the fact that bi women were infected and polluted by having ever once kissed or had sex with a man. And that this almost like, that had changed something crucial and essential about their very nature, that they were tainted by having ever been close to someone with a penis. And you, what do you say to that? 
like, I'm sorry, I don't think there's a ghost penis that follows someone around. Like, what? And it really does fall back into this fear of pollution and fear of contamination. So, yeah. And and at any point that we are trying to say, you know, this big, huge field (laughs) is narrowed down to this one simple point that somehow makes me perfect and you all wrong. For me, what is so clear is because from my area of research, which is, you know, nationalism and all of that, Mm -hmm. is that the other, however shape that the other takes, is always polluted. It's Mm -hmm. always tainted. Mm -hmm. And introducing the other into the in-group will taint the in-group and you will cause, you know, this whole thing about cultural decline that we see when we're talking about immigration and all of it, which is very coded. And to be honest, it's no longer coded language. It's very clear what the language is. But Mm -hmm. it goes back to what we were saying at the start, that what's happening to trans people here in the UK is not unique. It's Mm -hmm. part of this long-standing history of othering people Mm -hmm. and the idea that they are unclean and they are being welcoming, for example, welcoming trans women into women-only spaces will somehow taint that space, will somehow make it unsafe. I mean, it's really fascinating to me, again, this kind of focus on trans people's bodies. And I think there is, again, it's that form of disgust. It's this form of being tainted. And it's something I'm not entirely sure. Again, if you only saw things from the outside, if you only saw the reasonable concerns, and why won't they be? debate these reasonable concerned peoples on Radio 4. But if you're a trans person online and in real life, so many of these transphobic groups and their followers and their supporters obsessed with trans people's bodies and obsessed with the idea that our bodies are filthy and disgusting, but crucially, like, need to be picked over and torn apart. So, you know, thinking about 10 years ago, there was a infamous blog I won't even mention the name, just I feel like if there you are, I'm calling up a ghost uh, <laughs> between that, where the author of the blog, she'd go through trans masculine people's private surgical photos and she'd put them on her blog, not just surgical photos, but, you know, like, again, private photos that people thought they'd posted privately to, to their friends or their followers of maybe like genital changes they'd experienced on, on testosterone or again, like, oh, I'm really pleased my top surgery is healing up. And the blog, the whole point was to look at these pictures and go, oh, how disgusting. These could have been beautiful women's bodies, which have been corrupted and destroyed. And it was to obsess over them in, in incredible detail. And you see sort of similar people going on Twitter and pulling apart pictures of famous women. I think like including Kira Knightley, people like that going, oh, I can tell she's really a man. She's a trans woman who thinks she's fooled us all. But look, 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 I saw something there. And it's it's really obsessive and it really does, again, it feels like it's all about those boundaries and about we're trying to keep the pure people pure from almost like your body is an infected thing that's going to come along and spread. It's they use the language. Not, not well. It's not mentally well to do that. And I say this as someone with mental illness. <laughs> you know, I have been dealing with being a mentally unwell person for the majority of my life. And please, these people need to go and get therapy. And I'm not saying that as an insult. You do not obsess over people like this. You do not get so obsessed over contamination. I say as someone with OCD who has problems with contamination, you don't end up like this and without something going very wrong. (laughs) Uh, But again, no no one should be entertaining this as a serious line of thought. 
It's you're absolutely right. I think you used the example of Keira Knightley, and the one that comes to my mind is the latest one that I saw was Taylor Swift, like zooming in on Taylor Swift's Adam's apple or her crotch in a bikini and going like, this is proof, you know, but this language as well of, of contamination and the obsession with the body, the body of the other, you know, as you, as you are talking about, it just puts me in mind of, you know, the freak shows of the yeah. 19th century and the 20th century and this parading of those bodies that were disabled bodies or mm-hmm. racialized bodies as, you know, these six freaks that you can stare at and you can point at it, but also that you, you are entitled to do that. Mm-hmm. You're entitled to their bodies. And I'm a cis woman living in a patriarchal world and I have the experience of men feeling they're entitled to my body. But the experience of trans women with people... <laughs> The way they behave as if they're entitled to know your private medical history and not just to know it, but to parade it. It is something that is at a different level. Speaking of freak shows, I certainly grew up with Jerry Springer on all the time. I was coming home from school and trans bodies being paraded there, like really obviously as a freak show. And like, can you tell and can you look and, you know, oh, my God, you know, pull people apart for entertainment and fun. And it's the same thing. And the anger. When a trans person says, no, you don't have access to my body like that. I think the example I use in my book is when Laverne Cox shut down, like, no, she's not, she's not going to, you know, she's a professional actress. She's not there to talk about intimate parts of her body with, you know, obviously, you know, people can if they want to, but, you know, it's not a question you ask someone. Yeah. So, you talk about the example that you give in your book is, is so good. Is you don't ask a pregnant woman if having a baby destroyed her vagina. When you're talking about bodies and how bodies are weird, it reminds me very much of this book that my little girl has. She's four and she has a book called Bodies Are Cool. <laughs> it's it's a really amazing body that I wish I had as a child. It's just about how everybody has different bodies and different body types. And it's illustrated with all kinds of people, different shapes, sizes, disabilities and stuff. And she, and she loves it. But on Amazon, if you go on Amazon and you buy it, the first review, at least it was when I bought it for her, is a one-star review and saying that it is propaganda because Ooh. of one line in the book that mm-hmm. says, you know, I think it's something like magically rearranging bodies, ever-changing bodies, and the idea that you can transform your body and that was, you know, propaganda for children mm-hmm. and why on earth would you do this? And this is the our society has gone crazy. And I bought the book on the strength of that review. <laughs> Because if you hate this book for these reasons, I mean, it's a great book. And it is. It's a beautiful book with a beautiful message that bodies aren't static, right? We change. And you have the right to change your body in a way, whatever way you see fit to match your identity. Mm-hmm. We do it all the time with our hair. <laughs> Why are people so obsessed with the idea of changing your body? And it's exactly what you're saying is purity. It's this mm-hmm. vision of the pure body. And the pure body is very much a abled body, mm. a healthy body, the way we yeah. understand health, a white body and a thin body. Mm-hmm. And we need to question these and where these assumptions are coming from. And you talk at the very beginning of your book that to deal with everything that's going on, we also need to think about unlearning. It's mm-hmm. not just learning and getting educated on trans rights, trans issues, etc. It's about unlearning a lot of our thought patterns and a lot of the things we have been taught throughout our lives. I think that that question of unlearning I find so fascinating when it comes to working with cis people about updating things like pronouns. Because I think for a lot of people, they see, you know, it's almost like, what's the trick I can use? 
so that I don't misgender someone. Because people, you know, they genuinely don't want to cause hurt. They also don't want to be embarrassed. You know, nobody likes those things. Those are two crappy things. And, and they want to know how they can do it right. And I think the problem is, is that the advice we're often given about how to get it right relies on leaving the underlying misinformation almost intact and kind of trying to plodge something on top. But the really important lesson that that I think, you know, I have had to learn as a trans person and, and you know, all the other trans people I know have had to learn and we all have to keep learning it, is that what we've learned about the sex gender system is so frequently wrong and damaging to those around us that it is a continual sense of how do I unlearn the assumptions I'm putting on others and on myself and instead really learn how to see someone and know them as they are showing themselves to be to me. There is a real difference between like, oh, I've met CN and they say they want to be called they, so I'm going to try and remember to call them they, even though actually I don't see them as that. And, and inevitably those people will misgender me. And they will often then try to apologize by saying things like, oh, I'm really sorry. But the thing is, it's like, I just put you in my girl club or it's the way you look or this, that, whatever. And I get that people don't want to be the bad guy. But if you really knew me as me, I don't think you would misgender me in the same way. And the people who I know, <laughs> and uh, you know, the people I know who I, I know and can trust know me and have my back, they don't. And obviously mistakes can happen, particularly if you've used one name or one pronoun previously for somebody, and then you have to update because that's how learning works. But at the same point, when there's a continual sense of, oh, I just can't get someone's name right. I just can't get someone's pronoun right. I think that's because there is a much greater job of unlearning that needs to happen before you can really sit with what it means to appreciate someone as who they are rather than who you've kind of ascribed them to be based on cultural cues that you inherited you didn't make those up you know again it's not trying to put an individual blame we all learn these random things and so much of them are dangerous but but isn't that one of the whole points of feminism to pick away at the patriarchy and to say jesus that's what we were taught <laughs> that's not right it's i i really and obviously i would say this i'm a trans feminist but I, I don't see them as separate things. We are so screwed over by this deeply, well, you know, you talk about authoritarianism and, and fascism, you know, this patriarchal system or systems is authoritarian in the extreme and it's it's not helpful. And I just, I just want us to set it on fire. I wanted to end it by asking you, because you're an educator, I'm an educator mm -hmm. as well, and one is strange as educator to speak about the concept of unlearning because mm -hmm. you think about teaching it's just giving information but it's, it's such a key part of it is to unlearn what you used to know to question your beliefs and I'd, I tell my students every time you know I subscribe to I was very much inspired by bell hooks um teaching to transgress and the idea of teaching as the practice of freedom so for any listener who is listening today and is curious and wants to know more, but also wants to unlearn something, what do you, what do you think, what would you suggest or what steps can be taken? I mean, one thing I would, I, I'm in a deeply Ursula K. Le Guin moment. I have been for the whole pandemic. And maybe a really nice thing if you felt like picking up something to read that wasn't nonfiction is I love Ursula K. Le Guin's short stories and the way that in 
breaking down all of these different cultural elements in her short stories in ways which are both alien and utterly recognizable. You can't help but question things in your own life, your own mind, your own culture, and start questioning them and unlearning them too. So that would be a really gentle introduction, I think, of a way, you know, to read maybe a volume of her short stories with an eye to what assumptions do I make about these societies? What assumptions do I make about mine? Just that kind of questioning attitude. Does that make any sense? I realize that's quite a... a it, it's not a hard and fast thing, you know, go and read these theorists or, uh-huh. you know, here's a manual of education you could look at. But I I do think it's a, a mindset, not a set of concrete actions. And that mindset is about curiosity. It's about humility, compassion at the forefront of everything. And by compassion, I don't mean, I think, you know, frequently when we talk online, the words empathy and compassion, I feel are used in a very limited way, almost like I can't give any more empathy because I'm all used up. And, and I'm not talking about having to do additional work for people that hate you or or to use up energy that you just don't have anymore until you're burnt out and hollow. What I mean instead is a compassionate mindset, which is a kind of foundational point of feeling with and, and a feeling with which enhances and expands the self and allows us to be in that place where we are confident enough that we can start unlearning. You know, I think particularly being a music teacher, maybe the reason I'm so keen on unlearning is I've had to do so much work with my own voice because the majority of vocal instruction is unlearning. It's unlearning unhealthy habits. It's unlearning crappy things that we picked up because we thought that's what a good singer was meant to be. It's about actually getting in touch with your body as it is rather than pummeling it into a place that you think it has to be. And it's learning to trust yourself in your lack of control. It's deeply therapeutic in many ways but crucially you can't do that as a student unless you trust your teacher and you can't teach it without giving your student a place where they know they're safe so I I think maybe I would encourage everybody go read some Le Guin or go and read another author who encourage you to encourages you to be in that space where you feel held and you feel expansive and you can be really curious about why we think the things that we think, why we think they're right, and whether or fact they might, might maybe not be so right after all, and whether yes. that's actually more exciting. I love that. And I just last week reread The Dispossessed, so I'm in a liquid mood. So I am going to, to <laughs> her short because you know, I have never read her short stories. I've read her novels, but not her short stories. So I'm going to go and buy it right now. And if you're not into short stories, I think you can achieve very much of, of what you're talking about with the left hand of darkness. And oh, yeah. There is something very special, I think, about speculative fiction that makes your brain just feel yeah. a, a stretching motion here. But it's just tremendous. And I there's such radical potential there, which Le Guin knew perfectly well and articulated so well. Um, it, it makes that prospect of unlearning it's exciting and maybe this is me being a nerdy teacher and you might find this the same as well but like knowledge is cool oh god I've turned into like a 90s Miss Frizzle but I don't even care learning is cool and the kind of stuff you have to do to to be able to learn new things is also really exciting thank you so much this was such a brilliant conversation it was such a pleasure to have you on and I'm so looking forward to sharing your book with our readers Thank you so much for being so open. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been a real pleasure. 
That was C and Lester. You can find them on Twitter at C and Lester. Their book, Trends Like Me, is available wherever books are sold. I also highly recommend the audiobook version of Trends Like Me, with CN narrating the book themselves. I love their voice, so the audiobook was such a treat. Remember that Trends Like Me is also our February Frenemies Book Club book. If you'd like to join our exclusive book club meetings, just head over to Coffee and become a monthly supporter of the show. As usual, I will be doing a giveaway for a free copy of Trends Like Me. To join, just donate over a coffee or tweet us a screenshot of your review of the show. The link is in the episode description. Are you enjoying Enemies of the People? I hope so. I really do. Please, if you are, remember to share today's podcast with at least three new people so you can help us get one over Nigel Farage. I am once again on a mission to get my anti-fascist podcast ranked higher than a fascist podcast. It's not too much to ask, is it? If you enjoyed our conversation with CN today, well, then I'm happy to tell you that this Thursday, the 10th of February at 9.30pm UK time, CN and I will be live on Twitter continuing our conversation. We are trying this new Twitter Spaces technology. You can find the link for this on our Twitter Enemies pod. It should be live by the time this podcast is live as well and you can set a reminder. You can find us on Twitter at Enemies Pod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People.